Welcome to Murder Bucket, a true crime podcast where I talk about everything from murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and also weird stuff. If you never want to miss a new episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It would also be helpful if you rated and left me a review. This spreads the word about Murder Bucket. Let's see what we're going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome to another glorious Tuesday. Before we begin this evening, I want to put out a disclaimer or trigger warning or whatever you want to call it regarding the topic that we are discussing tonight. There is going to be quite a bit of discussion regarding mental illness, seeking help for mental illness, and the shooting and murder of several young adults, children, and babies. So if this is not your thing, or this is a potential trigger for you, or something that you just don't want to hear, I would discourage you from listening to tonight's episode as well as next week's episode, as this is going to be a two-parter. We are going to jump right on into our week-slash-weekend recap, and even though I was not here last week and we did not have an episode, there really isn't a lot to discuss. The reason we didn't have an episode last week is because I had just recently gotten back from a small vacation that my husband, my daughter, and I took with 10 of our friends. Um, We went to Western Maryland, rented a house, and hung out there all weekend. We went hiking. Everybody cooked food, like their different meals. We played games. We sat outside. We swang on the big tree swing. And we just had a really relaxing weekend. And because of that, I had not prepared anything for an episode last week. So I just decided to take that week off. This past Sunday, we started Church League Softball, which I played last year and had an absolute blast, even though I am not athletic at all, like zero athletic skills. But for some reason, I really enjoy it. But anyways, our first game was this past Sunday, so just a couple days ago. And of course, it was in the 60s, and it was pouring down rain about 15 minutes into our game. But because there was no lightning or thunder, we just continued the game and finished it in the rain. So at one point, after I had got up to bat, somehow I made it on the base, I was standing at second base... And it's just pouring down rain. Here I am in shorts and a tank top, just shivering, dripping wet, and hoping this game is not going to last much longer. Well, all in all, we had a great first game. Yes, we lost 12 to 7. No big deal. Yes, it rained. Again, no big deal. But we had a great time. Monday wasn't anything special. And now you are here with me, and we're going to go ahead and get into tonight's episode. James Hubbardy was born on October 11, 1942, in Canton, Ohio. At the age of three, he contracted polio, which left him permanently disabled. 
he had to wear steel and leather braces on his legs for a long time. After recovering enough to remove those braces, he now walked with a slight limp. In the early 1950s, James's dad purchased a 155-acre farm in Pennsylvania Amish country. His mother refused to move and ended up leaving their family to perform sidewalk preaching as a Pentecostal missionary. This left James emotionally devastated. At an early age, he developed an interest in firearms and would often work on target practice. He became an amateur gunsmith in his teens. In 1962, he enrolled at Malone College in Canton, Ohio, and began studying sociology. After a while there, he ended up leaving and started studying at Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He graduated with honors in 1964 and was immediately issued a funeral director's license and then an embalmer's license a year later. James met Etna Marland in 1964 while attending Malone College. They married in 1965. James then acquired a position at a funeral home in Canton, but because of his introverted personality, he was ill-suited with dealing with the public. He tried working in this profession for two more years before giving up and opting to become a welder for a company in Louisville, Ohio. His employer considered him a reliable worker because he was good at his job and was always willing to take overtime. In the mid-1970s, he was making anywhere between $25,000 and $30,000 a year. In today's time, that's between $121,000 and $145,000 a year. After James was hired, he and his wife Etna purchased a home in Massillon. But in the winter of 1971, the home was destroyed by a fire. They then bought another house on the same street. On the property of their first home, James and Etna built a small apartment complex and rented it out. Between the years 1972 and 1974, James and Etna had two daughters, Zelia and Cassandra. James had a problem with domestic violence, which some people contributed to the hatred he had toward his mother leaving. This resulted in him frequently slapping or punching his daughters and beating his wife. Etna would often try and get James to seek counseling to try and alleviate his sources of stress. He refused. Instead, she would minimize any possibility of agitating her husband by attempting to influence and control his behavior. One way that she would do this is by claiming that she could read his future with tarot cards. James, of course, believed her. When she did this, James would follow the recommendations his wife during these readings. Many of James's neighbors saw him as somewhat paranoid and obsessed with firearms. James would harbor a mental tally of every single setback, insult, or general source of frustration. He would often retaliate, but would get detained on charges of disorderly conduct. At one point in his life, he believed that President Jimmy Carter and then-President Ronald Reagan were conspiring against him. He was convinced that there would be an increase in Soviet aggression and that the breakdown of society was coming. 
James was then laid off from his welding job in November of 1982 because the firm was closing down. This caused him extreme frustration and anxiety about his financial situation. One coworker stated that he made a comment that because he couldn't provide for his family anymore, he intended to commit suicide and take everyone with him. Etna claims that soon after James was laid off, he confided in her that he was hearing voices. In 1983, Etna saved James from committing suicide after he placed a loaded pistol against his temple. He told her that she should have let him shoot himself. After James was laid off from his welding job, he consistently tried to find work. Most of the places he found didn't last long. He found employment at another plant, but that only lasted five weeks because that plant also closed. To stay financially afloat, Edna and James sold their apartment complex for $115,000. Several weeks after the plant closed, James and one of his daughters were injured in a car accident. Because of this, he began experiencing tremors in his hands and arms. Etna and James figured that the money that they had received from the apartment complex would last longer in Mexico, so they both applied for residency there. They told family and friends that they intended on relocating to Tijuana and would begin searching for employment. In October of 1983, the family moved from Ohio to Mexico. They left all but their most essential possessions in storage. Of course, James had to bring his large collection of guns, ammunition, and survival supplies. James soon regretted relocating to Mexico after he was unable to find employment. Within three months of moving, the family relocated to San Ysidro, just outside of San Diego, California. They rented an apartment while James looked for employment. He soon became irritated that he and his family were the only Anglo-Americans in their complex, he became very ignorant of his neighbors. James applied to participate in a federally funded program that offered security guard training. He finished the course in April and was able to obtain employment with a firm in Chula Vista. He was assigned to guard a condominium complex. With some of the money he earned from this job, he was able to get the rest of the family's belongings shipped to them and also relocate into a different apartment. On July 10th, James was dismissed from his job due to his poor work performance and his physical instability. On July 15th, he told his wife that he suspected that he had a mental health problem and needed to seek help. He contacted a San Diego mental health clinic two days later and requested an appointment. He figured the clinic would call him back within hours, so he sat by the phone. Etna stated that after waiting for hours, he abruptly walked out of the house and rode away on his motorcycle. He returned to his home about an hour later in a better mood. He ate dinner, the family biked to a nearby park, and then returned home and watched a movie together. According to the clinic, the receptionist misspelled his name and marked him as a non-crisis caller because he stated that he had never before been hospitalized for mental health issues. This made his inquiry something that would be handled within 48 hours. The next morning, James and Etna took their children to visit the San Diego Zoo. While there, 
James told his wife that he believed his life was over and referred to the mental health clinic's failure to call him back. Many articles state that he said, well, society had their chance. After they were done with their zoo visit, they headed to lunch at the McDonald's in the Claremont neighborhood of San Diego. After lunch, they headed home. After being home for some time, James walked into his bedroom where his wife was laying on their bed relaxing. He leaned over and said, I want to kiss you goodbye. Etna asked where he was going and James replied, going hunting, hunting humans. He then walked toward the front door and said, goodbye, I won't be back. He walked out of the house with a gun, a box of ammunition, and an unknown bundle wrapped in a checkered blanket. He then drove down San Ysidro Boulevard and pulled into the McDonald's parking lot just 200 yards from his apartment. James had with him a 9mm Browning semi-automatic pistol, a 9mm Uzi carbine, a Winchester 1200 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, as well as a box and a cloth bag filled with hundreds of rounds of ammunition for each weapon. He entered the restaurant at 3.56 p.m. and aimed his shotgun at 16-year-old employee John Arnold. The assistant manager, Guillermo Flores, then shouted, Hey, John, that guy's going to shoot you. James pulled the trigger and nothing happened. He then began to examine his gun and while doing so, Nevaeh Kane, the manager, walked toward the counter and directed John to walk away. James then fired the shotgun at the ceiling to ensure that it would work this time. He then pulled out the Uzi and shot Nevaeh just below her left eye. She died instantly. James then fired the shotgun at John, striking him in the chest and arm. He then shouted, Everybody on the ground. He then called everyone in the restaurant dirty swine Vietnam assholes before claiming that he had killed a thousand people and intended on killing a thousand more. McDonald's customer Victor Riviera approached James in the hopes that he could persuade him not to shoot anyone else. Instead, James shot him 14 times while repeatedly shouting, Shut up, as Victor screamed in pain. Victor's wife, Maria, and their children were huddled under a booth. She tried calming her daughters down by telling them that the bullets were ice and that the ice machine had burst. She told them to lay down and fall asleep. James then shot in their direction several times, and she and her girls pretended to be dead. James came over to them and kicked them to ensure in his mind that they were in fact dead. Maria had a bullet graze her arm while her four-year-old daughter, Mavea, had been shot in the leg. James then turned his attention to a group of six women and children that were huddled together. He shot and killed 19-year-old Maria Colmenero Silva with a single gunshot to the chest and then shot nine-year-old Claudia Perez nine times with the Uzi, hitting her in the stomach, cheek, thigh, hip, leg, chest, armpit, and head. She died moments after from her injuries. He then wounded 15-year-old Imelda Perez by shooting her once in the hand. He shot 11-year-old Aurora Pena with a shotgun, wounding her in the leg. She was being shielded by her pregnant aunt, 18-year-old Jackie Reyes. 
James shot Jackie Reyes 48 times with a Uzi. Jackie's eight-month-old son, Carlos Reyes, was sitting next to his mother and began to cry. James then shot the baby in the center of his back with a single pistol shot. 62-year-old Lawrence Versluez was the next person to be shot and killed. James turned to 31-year-old Blythe Reagan Herrera and her husband Ronald. They were attempting to shield their 11-year-old son Mateo and his 12-year-old friend Keith Thomas by placing themselves in front of them while they were hiding under a table. Keith was shot in the shoulder, arm, wrist, and left elbow, but wasn't seriously injured. James then shot Ronald six times in the stomach, chest, arm, hip, shoulder, and head. He survived. Blythe and Mateo were killed when they were shot in the head numerous times. Three women nearby also attempted to hide beneath a booth. 24-year-old Guadalupe Del Rio was hit several times but not seriously wounded. 31-year-old Aracelsi Volvas Vargas was shot a single time in the back of her head. She died the next day in the hospital. 25-year-old Gloria Ramirez was not injured. James then killed 45-year-old Hugo Valquez Vasquez with a single shot to the chest. McDonald's employee Albert Leos recalled that while he was hiding in the back kitchen area of the restaurant with several other employees, he would occasionally peek around to see what was going on. He saw James walk up to random people and shoot. Not looking, but just shoot. He then would shoot at random things all around the restaurant. He would pause for several seconds and start all over again. Albert can recall counting how many times James fired at one point, and it was well over 125. While he was hiding, he could hear James constantly reloading. Albert and the other employees he was hiding with stayed as quiet as possible so that James didn't hear them, but he eventually did. James walked over to them and began shooting. While he was shooting, employee Wendy Flanagan was encouraged by Margarita Padilla to get up and run for the rear exit with her. James shot and killed Margarita. Wendy then discovered that the rear exit was locked, so she and six other employees ran for a closet. Albert was then shot five times. James then killed Elsa Herlinda Barboa Ferra and Paulina Aquina Herrera. He then ran out of bullets and left the area to go back to the front of the restaurant to get more ammunition. Because Albert had been shot in the leg, he was unable to get up and run. So he decided to crawl down 25 steps and hide in the basement closet where the other employees were. Mind you, all of this took place within four minutes before the first of many 911 calls were placed. Because the stretch of San Ysidro Boulevard was so long, there were two McDonald's on this road. This turned out to be a terrible thing because when the 911 calls came in, dispatchers sent responding officers to the wrong location. The mistake delayed the imposition of a lockdown by several minutes. At 4.02 p.m., Lydia Flores drove into the McDonald's parking lot and proceeded to the drive-thru. When she got to the window, she noticed the shattered glass and the sound of gunfire. She recalls that when she looked up, she saw him shooting. 
She immediately reversed her car so fast that she hit a fence. She then hid in bushes with her two-year-old daughter until the shooting was over. At 4.05 p.m., Hispanic couple Astolfo and Marcella Felix drove into the parking lot and noted the shattered laminated glass. Astolfo first assumed that there was renovation work being done and that their restaurant was closed. He and his wife, along with their child, got out of their car and began walking toward the restaurant. Astolfo saw James exit the building and walk toward them. He assumed that he was a repairman. That was until James fired his shotgun and Uzi at them and at their car. He struck Marcella in the face, arms, and chest. This blinded one of her eyes and permanently rendered one of her hands useless. Their four-month-old daughter, Carlita, was hit in the neck, chest, and abdomen. Alstolfo was hit in the chest and head. As Marcella was collapsing, Alstolfo handed their daughter to Lucia Valesco. Lucia took the baby to the post office next door to seek shelter. Her husband helped Alstolfo and Marcella get cover. Alstolfo, Marcella, and their daughter all survived. While this was happening, three 11-year-old boys rode up on their bikes to purchase Sundays. They then heard several people across the street yelling something at them that they couldn't understand. James turned and shot at them with his shotgun and Uzi. Joshua Coleman fell to the ground after being hit in the back, arm, and leg. Omar Alonzo Hernandez had been hit in his back. He died almost instantly. David Flores Delgado had been hit several times in the head and also died soon after being shot. In the documentary titled 77 Minutes, Joshua states that he laid on the ground for over an hour playing dead so that James wouldn't shoot him again. James then turned his attention to an elderly couple who were walking toward the entrance of the restaurant. 74-year-old Miguel Victoria Ula opened the door for his wife, 69-year-old Ada Velasquez Victoria. James fired and killed Ada with a shot to her face. The shot wounded Miguel. A customer inside the building recalls in an article seeing Miguel cradling his wife, wiping the blood from her face, and shouting curses at James. He witnessed James approach the door, yell at Miguel, and then shoot and kill him. Ten minutes after the first 911 call had been placed, the police finally showed up at the correct location. Officer Miguel Rosario was the first one on scene. When he arrived, he parked his patrol vehicle at the post office next door. As he was walking up, he noticed things around weren't normal and that something was wrong. That's when he saw James coming out of the restaurant. James spotted the officer and began shooting. Officer Rosario only had a 38 caliber handgun and knew that he was outgunned with James Zuzi, so he hid behind a nearby truck. James shot at Officer Rosario continuously. During this, Officer Rosario called dispatch on his radio and relayed the information. In the 77 Minutes documentary, they play a short clip of the audio and you can hear him tell dispatch, I'm taking rounds here. Police then imposed a lockdown of the area that spanned six blocks from the restaurant. A command post was established two blocks from the restaurant. 
175 police officers were deployed to several strategic locations. Within the hour, many members of the SWAT team had also joined them by taking positions around the restaurant. Because James was firing rapidly and switching between guns, at first the police and SWAT were unable to determine how many people were inside. With many of the windows of the restaurant being struck by gunfire, it was difficult to get a good line of sight. They feared that James was holding hostages and that there could be more than one shooter. That was when a customer was able to escape from the restaurant without James noticing, and they informed the police that he was in fact the only shooter, there were no hostages, and that he was just shooting anyone he encountered. SWAT sniper Chuck Foster was on scene at 4.40 p.m., and immediately got on top of the post office roof along with his spotter, Larry Bennett. He recalls seeing bodies inside the restaurant as well as James pacing back and forth throughout. Many of the officers on the ground attempted to get close to the building so that they could assist the boys that had been shot right outside the door, but they were driven back each time as James would immediately start firing at them. At 5.05 p.m., SWAT sniper Chuck and Larry were given authorization to kill James if they were able to get a clear shot. At 5.20 p.m., SWAT sniper Chuck could see James through double doors where the glass had shattered completely. James was sitting on the counter and had his legs dangling while he was reloading one of his weapons. As soon as he hopped off the counter and walked toward the double doors to look outside, Chuck shot him directly in the heart. He collapsed and died instantly. This is where we're going to end tonight. Next episode, we will discuss the aftermath and legacy of the shooting, as well as how this tragedy changed how law enforcement responded to emergency situations. We will also discuss one of the interviews with his wife, Etna, and an interview his daughter did 35 years after the shooting. I am now going to read the victims' names, and then we will pause for a moment of silence. McDonald's employees who died. Elsa Herlinda Barboa Ferreira, 19. Nevea Denise Kane, 22. Paulina Aquana Lopez, 21. And Margarita Padilla, 18. Customers who died. Michelle Deanna Carncross, 18. Elena Colmenero Silva, 19. Gloria Lopez Gonzalez, 22. Blythe Reagan Herrera, 31. Mateo Herrera, 11. Claudia Perez, 9. Jose Ruben Lozano Perez, 19. Carlos Reyes, 8 months old. Jackie Lynn Wright Reyes, 18. Victor Maximilian Rivera, 25. Arcelsi Volvaz Vargas, 31. Hugo Loris Valquez Vasquez, 45. Lawrence Herman Versluis, 62. David Flores Delgado, 11. Miguel Victoria Ula, 74. Omar Alonzo Hernandez, 11, and Ada Valsquez Victoria, 69. McDonald's employees who were injured, John Arnold, 16, Albert Leos, 
17, and Francisco Lopez, 22. Customers who were injured, Juan Acosta, 33, Anthony Atkins, 36, Alstolfo Sajundo, 26, Joshua Coleman, 11, Guadalupe Del Rio, 24, Alstolfo Felix, 31, Carlita Felix, 4 months old, Maricela Felix, 23, Ronald Herrera, 33, Aurora Pinea, 11, Imelda Perez, 15, Maria Rivera, 25, Mervea Rivera, 4, Keith Thomas, 12, Juan Takeno, 33, and Kenneth Velagas, 22. Let's pause for a moment of silence. And that concludes tonight's episode. I will leave you with this. Nearly one in five U.S. adults live with a mental illness. You are not alone. If you or someone you know has a mental illness, is struggling emotionally, or has concerns about their mental health, there are ways to get help. The National Institute of Mental Health has great resources on their website for you to help yourself a friend, or a family member. You can find these resources at www.nimh.nih.gov slash health slash find dash help. You can also call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text hello to 741741. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. <laughs>